Hello everyone, I'm Philip Dickens and this is From the Hill of Megiddo, the podcast serialization of my book of the same name. In the last episode, we saw the rise of the Antichrists as the human world adjusted to its new reality, filled with demons and vampires. Now, let's dive into the next three chapters and see what follows. Chapter 27 New Orleans was aflame. Police, ambulance and fire sirens screeched in all directions as the city fell apart. Riot police held the line against a mob armed with bats and Molotov cocktails. Storefronts lay in tatters as looters raided for supplies, often fighting with one another over this or that item if they were in short supply. Dogs barked, alarms rang, flames rose. Tom regarded the carnage with the whisper of a smile on his face before affecting a frown and turning back to his army. You see, he said, sinful humanity consumes itself. The first woe is upon us, demons rise, and all that man can do is gnaw upon his own tongue. Is it any wonder that Satan has made this world his playground? They said no, and shook their heads with such conviction, all eager to be saved. And he was their saviour. Those not convinced at first by words and deeds had come around with the signs from heaven. He had to hand it to that demon. Lucius knew how to put on a show. No, indeed it is not, Tom said. He hammed up his accent, leaned on every syllable to make his words sound more dramatic. But Satan is not the only player in town! They cheered and raised their weapons in the air. Some had guns, but many more had pitchforks, shovels, baseball bats or kitchen knives. Anything they could find. Like the looters and rioters but better organised and with a higher purpose, all following him. He raised his hands with them and let them cheer. When the noise quietened, he said, This road we stand on will take us right into the centre of town, directly to where the sinners are, rising up against themselves in a credulous panic. We have shown our worth by our willingness to purge sinners from our own midst, but this was merely a beginning. Now we must walk the long road and take the fight to sinners elsewhere. We defeat the demons by defeating the men who do wrong by God. Here begins our crusade! Another cheer, this one louder. Tom turned so that they didn't see the grin on his face, and adjusted his pants so that they didn't see his pleasure. Then they were marching forward, his tribulation saints, into the New Orleans riots to let war be joined. Hazel hesitated for about a minute outside Miles' house before finally knocking on the front door. When Miles answered, he was wearing only a pair of baggy grey jogging shorts and she had to force herself not to stare at his chest. Broad, heavy with muscle and covered with thick, dark hairs. Hazel, he said. What are you doing here? I, uh... She did her best to ignore the feeling of her face warming. Can I come in? He stepped aside and opened the door wider. As she went inside, he gestured towards the living room. He headed in, and he followed. After standing in front of the couch for a few moments, she judged it less awkward to sit down. Miles leaned in the doorway and regarded Hazel, his face giving nothing away. So what's happened? He asked. What? Uh, nothing, nothing. I just thought I'd come round and visit, since I haven't before. Yes, asked you to come and check up on me then. No, she said overacting her irritation at the presumption. People care about each other, you know, Miles. We don't just give a shit so that we can spy on people. He sighed and closed his eyes for a little longer than a blink. Sorry, he said. You're right, I'm sorry. Not expecting this response, or at least so soon, Hazel was a little taken aback. All she could do was blink and say, It's okay, in a low voice. Can I get you anything? Have you got anything other than blood? She widened her smile to make it obvious that she was joking. Miles smiled back at that and sat down. Silence prevailed for a few moments, then he said, I can put sugar in it. They both laughed. So, have I, uh, interrupted anything then? She said. Miles seemed to realise only then that he was sitting close to her with no top on, and he stood up and shuffled several steps away from her. She watched this with a smile, her own earlier embarrassment forgotten. I was just about to go for a run, actually. Oh, do you want some company? 
Though it wasn't one she ever used for exercise. She was wearing a tracksuit. Sure? He grinned. If you can keep up, like... Oh, that sounds like a challenge. You're on. Alright. Don't blame me if you cop it, though. It turned out that miles as usual run fucking from one end of the city to the other in a circular route about 15 miles long and that he did this in just over an hour with relative ease. Hazel kept up, but she was already red-faced as they hit the halfway point. I thought Sentinels had to be fit. Miles teased her at one point. Yeah, she replied, but running a half marathon and then some at a few minutes notice is pushing it. Once they got back, he let her use the shower and dug out some clean clothes of Lydia's for her. He also suggested that for her benefit he could pick a shorter route next time. Next time? He shrugged. I suppose it's healthy to have someone to talk to occasionally. I'd like that, Hazel said, glad he seemed to be opening up. Over the course of the next month, the vampiric truce held and clashes between the rival groups were non-existent. Sightings of those loyal to the Van Fury ceased almost entirely, while the number of attacks on humans reduced considerably. Of these, a high percentage were foiled by the Guild, who doubled the amount of people they had active each night. The castle now recovered from its opening night to become a hotspot of Liverpool nightlife. Because of what its owner was, a core of its regular clientele was drawn to a certain romantic image of vampirism. The club did everything to accommodate them and to play this up, with their vampire staff wearing Victorian Gothic or burlesque costume and white face makeup. Various minor celebrities also frequented the venue on weekends, meaning that there was often a paparazzi presence outside. Celebrities aside, demographic the castle now appealed to was also strongly represented in pro-vampire protests. While the police remained the only barrier to violent clashes in opposition to the School for Demons, these demonstrations faced at worst the occasional dismissive heckle and largely being ignored as a pastime for alienated youths. But it was here where the Guild focused its efforts to gain intelligence on the Van Fury, asking three of its members with joining these activities. The idea was that by taking part, alongside going to the castle now on a regular basis, they would present themselves as the kind of people the vampires could groom for feeding and get close enough to gather intelligence. It's going to be dangerous, Hazel had said. I really can't stress that enough. They may not just murder people in an alley, but in the end their victims end up just as dead. Except that in between they spend long, miserable years as food and chattel. We don't know the full extent of what they go through, but suffice to say it's horrible. That had set Katie's nerves on edge. As scary as the encounter Miles had saved it from was, it was any a miss with Nathaniel that she thought back to. Was he part of the Van Fury? Was that what Hazel had saved her from? Think long and hard about it. If you're not absolutely sure that you can do this and you're willing to do it, then say no. Please. In the end, Katie couldn't point to any one thing that had won her over, or properly articulate why she was willing to do it. But, tense and full of adrenaline, she had volunteered. Two days after she did, there was another protest outside the town hall by vampire advocates. This one was different from those before in that it was part of a nationwide coordination where previously such events around the country had happened largely independent of one another. In an article to The Guardian, Naomi Simpson of the British League Against Vampire Rights opined that this suggested a highly worrying shift from deliberately controversial acting out by young people to something more calculated and insidious. Thus, for the first time, her organisation would be counter-protesting the events. When Katie got there, one group of demonstrators was gathered on the street at the side of the town hall. They had mostly homemade signs and were overwhelmingly young and students, milling without any clear direction whilst they waited for something to happen. A line of barricades and police stood between them and the side entrance to the hall, whilst two police horses waited behind them. Across the road, largely the same group which had picketed the opening of the castle now stood together behind a wide vinyl banner. Naomi was on the megaphone, denouncing the opposite group as deluded and misled, whilst a couple of others were out handing leaflets to passers-by. Although she knew in advance which group would be where, Katie made a point of approaching so that she would have to pass the anti-vampire group. When a man thrust a leaflet out at her, she waved it away. Then, as if it was an afterthought, she called him a bigot, 
This provoked him to start ranting at her about how she was delusional and flirting with the devil. Dracula's whore was her favourite barb. She stood there contemplating a comeback, when a young man whose ghost white face stood out from his black hair, eyeliner and clothes came across the road to rescue her. Get back in your pen, mate, he said. You'll stand there attacking a girl and then say vampires are the bad ones? Get lost. When the leaflet had retreated, Katie's rescuer turned to her and put a hand on her arm. Are you okay? She gently brushed away the unwanted touching and offered a smile. Yeah, I'm fine, thanks. Just can't believe that bloke had such a go at me. What did you say to him? I called him a bigot. Nice one. He led her across the road to the other protest, which still largely lacked any direction. I'm Simon, by the way. I'm Katie. She scanned the crowd. So have you done this sort of thing before? I started it. Me and a few others talked about it on Twitter. Then we set up the Facebook page. When that got enough likes, we decided to start doing the protests. There's a couple of us here, a couple in London. And when we started doing that, others copied us until it was happening everywhere. There was even one in Whitby, which was just boss. There was an electronic wine close by, which was another man turning on a megaphone. He then used it to get the protest chanting, heckling and otherwise making some noise. This finally got everyone animated, and the two rival demonstrations now matched one another as they slung chants, slogans and insults back and forth. As this went on, Simon introduced Katie to several others who he said had helped him get the first few protests off the ground. They were all dressed in dark clothing, sometimes with additional spiked and leather accessories, and their hair dyed colours such as black, purple and silver. It had been a while since Katie had dressed in a similar fashion, having gradually moved away from the style since Nathaniel had nearly killed her. But today she was fully dressed up once more. Katie found them easy to talk to, and most of the demonstration passed in conversation. Vampires were the main topic of conversation, of course, and she learned that they referred to the Vampuri as the kindred and their rivals as anarchs. The former were spoken of with reverence as wise ones who had transcended human life in a manner that struck Katie as somewhere between a cult and children playing a game. They talked of other things too, from television shows and books to the news and where they worked, but the conversations continued when the protest ended and they left to find a pub. Simon continued to place himself as close to her as possible inserting himself into discussions where she had started talking to someone else and staring at her in a way that made her skin crawl throughout it all. It was this constant level of attention that made her notice when he disappeared for a short while and she saw him talking privately with Kelly, a wisp of a woman in her late teens with pink hair arranged in spikes. After this conversation they both approached her and the rest of the group fell away. Katie looked at Simon warily, but it was Kelly who spoke. Katie, she said. We were wondering if you'd be interested in being part of our group. Your group? Katie said, feigning confusion. Simon told you that we organised these protests together, didn't he? She nodded. Well, as well as doing protests, we do other stuff together. Reading vampire and gothic literature and poetry, role-playing, that sort of thing. We were also going to try and get an audience with Laurent de Castle now to see if he'll formally support our protests. Because we think he will and he'll let us get closer to the kindred. You want to join in? He looked around them and took a moment to appear thoughtful before nodding again. This was met with cheers from the whole group and cause enough for another round of drinks. The building site where Kit was working was a closed off street. Scaffolding lined the terraces on both sides and the houses were stripped bare inside to be built up anew. The fight broke out in one of the middle houses but it was only when it spilled out into the road that the other workers came running, alerted by shouts and the clattering of scaffold. The noise rose quickly, more shouting as the first few lads there separated the two combatants. One was a short, wiry man in his early thirties who Kit knew only as Gibbo. The other was a demon with pink skin and short tusks pointing out of his cheeks. There was a cut on the side of the demon's mouth and he was favouring his left eye. Gibbo had no injuries that Kit could make out. He shouldn't be here, Gibbo shouted, struggling against those restraining him. You shouldn't be here, Hellspawn. Fuck you, knobhead. I'm trying to make a living. The demon shot back. So is the lad whose job you're doing. Not for cheap rates, neither. 
the foreman, Jono, forced his way through the crowd of workers until he stood between the two men. What the fuck is this? He said. What's going on? Gibbo, the demon, and several other lads around them all started speaking at once. It was impossible to make out what anyone was saying in the din. It forced his way forward during the row to get a better view. Enough, Jono said. Frank, why did you start this fight? And don't try and bullshit me, because I know it was you. Gibbo pointed at the demon. He shouldn't be here. He's took Craig's job, and he's doing it for half the rate. He didn't take Craig's job. Craig was sacked. Yeah, for speaking up about safety. I'm only being paid half the rate, the demon said. Don't play dumb, Hellspawn. As if Undercutters is now you got to hear it all. Hey, it said. He's not the bad guy. He's getting screwed over as much as we are. Nobody's getting screwed over, Jono said. Craig was a slacker and overpaid. Jake is getting what he should be getting. What we should all be getting, you think? Gibbo said. You want to sack us all and use demons to do our jobs on the cheap? A murmur rippled through the crowd, mostly in agreement. Enough of this. Get back to work. Until you find reasons to sack us one by one. Someone in the crowd shouted. Off that. Another voice offered. Come on, let's walk. This last call was echoed with shouts of strike and all out. As a group, the lads marched towards the exits of both the street and the site. Only Kit, Jono and the demon, Jake, didn't move with them. Someone shouted. Lad, you coming or what? Yeah, just a sec. Kit shouted back. He met Jake's eyes. Come with us. Jake shook his head. Jono went to grab Jake's arm, but he pulled it away. He'll attack me again. They all will. You're not the enemy here. They'll know that if you come out. If they don't, they will. Jake's eyes flicked to Jono, then back to Kit. Do you want to get sacked? Jono said. I want to get paid the full rate, Jake said. Kit smiled. He nodded in the direction of the rest of the workers, and the two of them walked off together. Kit glanced once back at Jono, but he didn't say anything, instead turning and stalking back to the site office. Kit walked through the gate first, staying close to Jake as he could see how tense and nervous the demon was. Outside he caught sight of Gibbo, who glowered at them but said nothing. A few others also kept their distance and shot wary looks at the demon, but several lads came over to congratulate Jake for joining the picket. Just like that? Jess asked Katie the next day, in the boardroom of Cyclade's house. One protest and some flirting with a creep and you're in? That was a bit too easy. I don't think so, Katie said. I don't think they're anything more than lonely kids looking to occupy themselves and add some interest to their days. If the Van Fury do have human companions, it's not them. So much for that plan then, Ayla said. No, Hazel replied. They may not be in with Laurent, but they're exactly the kind of people that Ina's vamps will try and groom. Jesus, Jess said with a shake of her head. The kind of people they'll try and groom. Listen to us. We're talking about feeding these monsters. No, we're not, Miles said. He looked at Katie. There was always going to be risk in this. But if it comes to the point where the cost of information is being trapped and being fed on for years, then you back out. Understand? She nodded. In the meantime, we have to keep Lauren distracted. If we stay away from him and focus on Gaz, he might suspect that we're watching him. So maybe I ought to introduce myself to him. The last time you confronted the Van Fury, you were lucky to get away. Jess said. I doubt they draw swords in the middle of Lauren's club. Which reminds me, Joel said. I found out what those swords are made of. Which silver? Miles raised an eyebrow. Which silver? Yeah, it's a magical compound developed by a coven of witches in Scotland in the 17th century. Ordinary silver which has been used to kill a werewolf 
is then infused with the spirit of a dying witch and you shaped using magic. It's very rare now because there are so few real witches' coffins left, and because in most parts of the world werewolves are contained now during the transformation rather than killed outright. And it's ended up in the hands of the Van Fury. Wonderful. Which kind of underlines how this is an awful risk, Hazel said. I'll be fine. Katie noticed the softening of Miles' tone when he looked at Hazel. Subtle, but confirmed by the look in Hazel's eyes when he said it. Jess noticed it too, her eyes flicking between them several times. Besides, he went on, this is what I do. I can't exactly wrap myself in cotton wool while asking others to take risks. He saw the frown on Jess's face. Look, this is the plan and that's the end of it. Jess's punch came out of nowhere. It was hard enough that Katie flinched at the crack when it connected with Miles' cheek. His head snapped sideways. As he recovered, he glowered at Jess, the silence in that moment so thick that Katie could hear only her own breathing. Then Miles growled and walked out. Katie looked over at Hazel. She looked just as taken aback by what they had just witnessed. The meeting broke up shortly after the confrontation, and Jess and Hazel found themselves alone in the office next to the boardroom. Hazel stood with her arms crossed as Jess paced in front of her, arms tense and fists clenched, the threat of tears in her eyes. I can't do it, she said. I just can't deal with that lad. It's like he just doesn't give a shit what happens to him or what those of us he leaves behind go through. It's too much. Yes, come on. Hazel let her arms fall to her sides. It's not like that. I'm sure he cares. He's just... Just what? She shrugged. No words coming to complete her sentence. You should know, as his running buddy. What? Kate saw you the other day on the way to work. It's cute. There was a smile on Jess's face, but it wasn't reflected in her eyes, and her tears were starting to take shape there. Really? I'm glad you've been able to make a connection with him. I just wish I could. You could, if you just... She shook her head. Now we always clash. It's because you two alike, Hazel said. You're both hot-headed twats. Despite herself, Jess erupted in laughter at that. On the third day of the building strike, a bus pulled up outside the site, escorted by two police cars. Most of those who got out were demons, although a few humans were amongst them. Immediately, the picket line tightened and the noise rose. Shouts of scabs and traitors filled the air. The police pushed the strike breakers together to form a line, and then flanked them on either side to force them through onto the site. All around the shouting continued, but the pickets close to the line pleaded with individual workers not to go in. They all lowered their heads and kept their eyes on the ground, some of them visibly shaking. Kit and Jake both recognised John, one of Toby's friends. They called his name at the same time, then shot each other a look when they realised. John stopped and looked up at them, causing the whole procession to grind to a halt, and the shouting to intensify. Jake? John said. What are you doing here, mate? What's it look like? Go on strike? But the paper said this was a strike against demons. It's not. They cut me out the pictures. But I came out with them, because we all want better conditions. They're using demons because they think we'll just accept being walked over. Join us, mate. Don't go in. John looked behind him with some uncertainty, which is when Kit noticed several others of their group in the procession. What's the hold-up? A police officer shouted. We'll arrest you for obstruction. It's not them, it's me. John shouted back. He looked behind him. Ev, Ben, Jake's here. He said it's not a strike against demons. What? One of them replied. Kit couldn't see which through the crowd. Yeah, Jake shouted. Come on, lads. This isn't about humans versus demons. Don't cross the picket. The police had lost all patience now. They grabbed the strike breakers at the front of the line and started forcing them through the picket onto the site. What do we do? Shit. Ah, fuck it. I'm not going to scab. Me neither. A policewoman grabbed Ben's shoulder, shrugged it off and stepped out of the procession into the picket, 
Earthbed and a couple of other demons did the same. The rest hurried through, eyes still down and grateful that the hold-up was over. While cheers ran through the pickup for those who had joined it. Well in, lads, Jake said. Around them, several others rushed to shake their hands, pat them on the back, or otherwise congratulate them. The strike wasn't won, and more buses would come, no doubt with far more police, so that they could pass through with less incident next time. Everyone's spirits were raised by what had happened. It would be about a week before the strike started to spread. The sound of the third trumpet wasn't followed by any great cataclysm, like the hail of fire and blood after the first, or the seas turning to blood after the second. Instead, its effects were felt as they piled up the following morning. Water fountains were dotted frequently about the streets of Rome, a constant stream of fresh water allowing people to drink and to fill up bottles. The homeless were the first ones whose bodies appeared by the fountains, their faces twisted in agony from when the bitter waters had burned at their insides. The bodies of cats and stray dogs were found at several fountains as well. Around the world, similar casualties mounted up. Villagers drawing their water from wells, people and household pets whose drinks came from taps, and many more. The death toll quickly surpassed that from previous trumpets. Chapter 28 Three days before the month-long stalemate was to end, a stylized V, encircled by a dragon eating its own tail, appeared on the front door of a derelict club in Liverpool city centre. By the time most people noticed it, mainly as a curiosity in passing, the knife stuck in the centre of the symbol was gone. The note that it held now lay open in front of Gaz. We thought he'd figure out where we were, so that's no big deal, he told Brian Tass. The big question is what else he's found out. They were in what had been a staff room on the second floor, out the way of the main bulk of vampires who resided in the club. Between the three floors of the building, those who were inside were variously sleeping, playing card games, or feeding on someone they had brought home. None paid much mind to what happened behind the closed doors, happy to follow Gaz's command since it had brought them the license and overabundance of food that they currently enjoyed. Even without the threat of what happened to those who disobeyed orders. We were sloppy in the last month, I said with a grin. So the Vampiri may have been able to find a couple of warehouses that we use and follow some of us to feed. Very fearless of us. But luckily, exactly while the important stuff was happening elsewhere. Good. We're ready to go then. She nodded. Does he want us to go to his club for these negotiations then? I asked. No, he says he'll come here when the month's up. We need to make sure that nobody else is in here with us when he arrives in order to honour the truce. And you go to? Of course. Those are the rules of the game. He saw Bright tense up. What? I just don't like the idea of dancing to the Van Fury's tune. We're not. You know that. Yeah, I know. But I don't like the idea of spending several centuries locked in a box in Madden and Pain for my transgressions. So let's not get this wrong. We won't, Gaz said. But he had heard the rumours too. Every single vampire with Gaz had, of the Vampuri's brutal methods of discipline. They pressed heavy upon them as they continued to plot their next moves. On the outside, the castle now was just another club in a row of clubs in the centre of Liverpool. Inside, arches had been built into the high ceiling and stained glass windows ran around the walls, backlit to the skies that they looked out on nothing. Candles burned in the centre of ornate chandeliers that hung from the ceiling, their light giving the club an orange gloom which perfectly suited its decor. For now, the bar, DJ booth and dance floor all stood empty. The candlelight is mostly for atmosphere, Laurent explained to Liana as they sat at a table close to the bar, drinking cappuccinos. But of course, this is a nightclub rather than a cathedral, so we offset this with strobe lights, spotlights, a smoke machine, all the usual stuff. His eyes bored into hair as he regarded her. I am boring you. No, she said with a shake of her head. It's all very interesting. I'm sure, he said, his tone not giving away any hints of sarcasm or irony. 
your editor has sent you here to find out more about my efforts in policing my fellow vampires. Not about how my club is run. Well, now that you mention it, a quote about your upcoming Christmas ball would be welcome for the lifestyle pages, if you don't mind. Of course, well... Raised voices came from outside the front door. As she looked up, a well-built young man with scruffy hair and thick stubble walked in, closely followed by one of the staff from the castle now. The staff member was the one whose voice was raised, while the young man was largely ignoring him and looking around the club. Laurent stood up and straightened his suit jacket. Please excuse me a moment, Miss Horster, he said. This should only take a moment to deal with. Leanne sat for a moment as Laurent approached the young man. However, once they were engaged in conversation, she moved from her chair and stepped closer, scrolling through Twitter on her phone in an attempt to look casual as she listened. Sir, I apologise. He simply wouldn't be told no, the doorman said. It's quite all right, Nicholas. Laurent held up a hand to placate his employee, then directed him back to the front door. Now, my friend, what can I do for you? There is still a day to go until I treat with Gaz, and as far as I know, I'm not with Gaz, the intruder said. But I thought I ought to say hello. Leanne went to the camera on her phone and, as subtle as she could, took a picture. On examination, it was steady enough that she could use it if this turned out to be anything interesting. Ah, of course. Laurent punctuated his exclamation with a sweep of his arm. You must be him, then. The so-called champion. I must. Now, now, boy. There is no need for games. You have come here to threaten me, yes? To warn me that you are onto me? Perhaps even to kill me where I stand? The man offered no answer, only staring a hole through Laurent. Leanne could feel herself tensing as the silence grew thicker, only to jump when it was crudely shattered by the man grabbing Laurent's neck. He ran forward, shoving the proprietor into a wall. The thud echoed around the room, and the wall seemed to shake with the impact. The attacker's voice was a low growl, but still in the empty room, Leanne could make out the words. Your head would already be off your shoulders, you worthless piece of shit, if it wouldn't just mean you'd be replaced by another puppet. In a moment, the doorman returned, and several other men and women joined him in converging on the scuffle. They were all dressed in black Victorian clothing and brandishing curved swords whose blades appeared blue. Leanne thought she could hear a low humming emanating from the weapons, but dismissed it as her imagination. Oh. The doorman shouted. One hand the Viceroy will be destroyed. Laurent's face remained a picture of calm as he looked into his attacker's eyes and shrugged, not pleading or begging. For that, he got a punch to the gut and then flung at two of his men. The other vampire ran after him, grabbed one of the swords from the floor where it had been dropped with the collision and took the doorman's head. Leanne screamed at the sight of blood and the head rolling across the floor. It was different in death with sunken cheeks, protruding brow, and teeth like a shark's. That only made the scene all the worse. That's the true face, the intruder said as he held the head up. That's what they all are. Don't forget that. He turned and flung the head at the woman advancing upon him, forcing her to step to one side to avoid being hit by it. I'll have your head, Lawrence, and burn the Van Fury to ashes. He announced before fleeing. Leanne found her way, shakily, back to the table where she had been sitting earlier. After recovering himself, Laurent would apologise to her for the chaos and resume the interview. She would go along with it as planned, and what she wrote would contain no mention of the fight that had interrupted them. But the image of the young man, also a vampire, speeding with righteousness was struck in her mind. There were also a number of terms that she had no context for, but which hinted at a deeper story. Champion, and Fury, Viceroy. She made a mental note to look into what they could possibly mean when she next had the chance. Whatever story there was to be told, she would find it. Laurent didn't make a grand entrance. There was a loud knock on the front door of the club, 
and when it was opened, there he stood. A man was with him, humid and pale-skinned, in a sharp suit and shirt to complement the appearance of the vampire he was with. Cars led them up to the second floor, where Tass and Bry were waiting. Laurent glanced about the surroundings, odds and ends of furniture scattered about a space scarred with burns and framed in cobwebs, with obvious disdain. Ignoring this attempt at a provocation, Gaz led him towards the smaller room off from this one and directed him to take a seat around the table. Before we begin, Laurent said while still standing, perhaps some introductions are in order? You know who I am, however... He waved a hand, leaving the sentence unfinished. Gaz introduced Tass, Brian himself in turn, and they all took Laurent's outstretched hand. He then sat and directed them to do the same. The human remained standing behind his chair. Who's that then? Bryce said. This is Manazar. He has been my companion since 1806. He is human? Yes, he is. Laurent's face betrayed nothing. But we are here to discuss the impasse between our forces, are we not? If you wish privileged knowledge, then you ought to pledge your allegiance to the High Council and earn the required rank. But if you had any intention of doing such, then we would not be here. Yeah, yeah, okay. Gaz cut in. Down to business then. As you've said yourself, we aren't going to get down on one knee and accept your rule. We're also not about to die quietly. So what's your offer? My offer is my good grace. As I said, I have no wish to slaughter you and your followers wholesale. Though you must know that I can. Instead... I can offer you absolution for your transgressions and positions of privilege if it will help those below to accept the change more readily and integrate. No? You refuse this? I have a counter-offer. You have no idea of our true numbers and we don't want a massacre either. He smiled. At least not a fellow vampires. We fought back at first because you attacked us and we interrupted your big night because we wanted to force a stop to the attacks. Otherwise, we've no problem with you lot being insufferable ponsers. The whisper of a smile crossed Laurent's face. How gracious of you. Innit? Gaz leaned back in his chair and kept his tone even, as if he was discussing something of a little consequence like food orders in a restaurant. So here's our counter-offer. Live and let live, or be destroyed. Laurent laughed, a full-throated belly laugh that appeared genuine rather than derisive. He stood up, and Manazar pulled his chair back. I'll take that as a no, then. Laurent slammed his hands on the table, and Gaz cursed himself for jumping. This was the most animated their guest had been, even when they had a sword to his throat. His voice came out as a low, rumbling growl. You can take it any way you please. I grow tired of this game and it is clear that what I thought of as a kindness was only indulging your indolence. So there will be no negotiation. Your followers will die, and I will have the three of you chained up in caskets with witch silver stakes through your hearts for the remainder of this millennium. A chill crossed Gaz's shoulders, and out of the corner of his eye, he could see that Bri looked as unnerved as he did. Then Manazar cried out. A dagger slid clean through the centre of his skull. At his hand on the hilt, she ran him into the wall, where the tip of the blade penetrated the wall. Then she took Laurent's legs with a sweeping kick and had him on his back with a knife to his neck, all in the space of less than five seconds. You're not games, dickhead, she said, her accent thicker with the sharpness of her tone. Here's what's going to happen. Either you take her offer, or we make the same offer to your successor with the return of your head as a sweetener. Laurent laughed, but the sound was muted and choked. Which would mean that I tolerate your dissidence, in turn undermining my authority among my own subjects, and my credibility to my superiors. Why would I do that, when decapitation of the, is the least of the possible negative outcomes? See? Now you're negotiating? Pass locked up at Gaz and Bry and winked. Why should they do that, boys? There was a pause before Gaz realised this was a cue. Well, he cleared his throat and stood up. Well, because you need us. 
It's all well and good playing this good vampire lark to the media and the fangirls. But we all know it's a masquerade. You're grooming these kids and goths and poses, selling them a romantic dream that turns out to be a nightmare. Pain and abuse drawn out for however long it is until they're broken and discarded. It's admirably sick and twisted, though I've never been one for keeping pets. But it also leaves a trail no matter how good you are. And if we're gone, then who's to blame? It's all well and good using your crusade against the bad vampires to win people over, but that all goes away if you win, and your own crimes still carry the risk of exposure. Instead, swap real hostilities for a charade. We get to carry on in peace, and we'll keep ourselves as low-key as possible to show that you're winning, and you get a patsy if your people get careless. Laurent raised his hand to the knife. Tats looked at Gaz, who nodded then removed it from his neck and stepped away. He stood up and smoothed his suit, then looked over at Manzar's body against the wall. Blood had trickled out of his wound and down his face into his collar. It is tempting, he said. I can sell this to the Ducci, I believe, if you add one more detail to this arrangement. What? He walked over to Manzar and pulled the knife out of his head. The human collapsed to the ground, and then, to Gaz's astonishment, shuddered and started coughing. The open wound in his head closed in the space of half a minute. Laurent licked the blood on the blade before handing it back. He'll burst the tass. He gave Manazar a handkerchief to wipe his face and collar with. The champion of man. You are aware of him? We've... run into one another, Gaz said, intentionally vaguely. Yes. Well, I want possession of him. Preferably alive, so that I can take my time to hurt him. Will you instruct your people? Okay. With one extra condition of my own. He gestured to Brian Tass. We get to be there when you wake him over. With that, a deal was struck, and they shook hands. A few days later, the castle now hosted its first Christmas ball. The paparazzi was out in force, cameras clicking eagerly for the various minor celebrities who turned out for the event. The police were also present in large numbers, keen to avoid a repeat of what had happened on the opening night. A solid ring of police rendered the protest by the British League against vampire rights all but invisible across the road. Another line of officers ran alongside the crowd behind the red velvet rope, queuing to get into the club in their hundreds. Laurent had agreed at the police's behest to keep his own security team within the club itself, far too, far too on the door, so as to avoid presenting an obvious target. There were to be no disturbances that night, however, aside from one or two attempted gate crashes and out-of-control drunks to be tossed. The atmosphere was electric, and as she waited in the queue, Katie found herself getting excited despite her internal reminders that she was still working. Several different things combined to make the tight feeling in his stomach and the tingle on his skin. Most obvious was the fact that she was willingly surrounding herself with vampires. Then there was the question of whether they would get into the club or not. The social anxieties linked to going to an entirely unfamiliar venue with people she didn't know. And the fact that she was wearing a quite skimpy cocktail dress. The chill of the wind against her skin was minimised by the weight of people around her. And she didn't stand out against the broader crowd. But nor did she fit in amongst her new friends, and she regretted not choosing a more gothic outfit. It was also the fact that it seemed to make Simon leer at her more. After around 45 minutes, that felt like 4 or 5 hours, they reached the front of the queue. A moment later they were inside, and everything was music, strobe lights and noise. She could hardly move for the tide of people pushing, pulling and swaying around her. The din drowned out her own thoughts and the floor thrummed with the beat of the music. The night progressed in a blare of drinks, dancing and half-haired conversations shouted straight into ears. She saw red eyes and fan canines on some of those she passed, but it meant little, and any sense that this was a haven for vampires disappeared. That was until one o'clock, when one of the other women in the group, Ivy, grabbed her arm with enough force that she spilled half of her drink. What is it? Katie asked. Laurent! The word came out as a squeal right at Katie's ear, making her wince. It's Laurent, he's agreed to meet us. Just like that, she found herself led through to a small room in the back of the club. It was warmly decorated with leather furniture and a real wood fire. 
Laurent was sat on an armchair next to the fire, his deep mocha skin offset by a cream suit. Another man, thin and white with neat brown hair, lay across his lap. There was a bloody wound on his neck and the vampire caressed his side delicately while feeding from him. Katie swallowed down in surprise and disgust, while Laurent looked up as though he had been interrupted from nothing more outlandish than reading a book. Ah, he said. Manazar, please. The man rose from Laurent's lap and straightened himself. Katie couldn't suppress the gasp when the wound in his neck healed itself, provoking a smile from Laurent. Yes, as you can see, humans benefit from their relationships with vampires as much as we do. There was no further explanation, but nobody else seemed put out, so Katie acted as, as though she wasn't either. The vampires shook hands with each of them in turn as they introduced themselves. Then he returned to his seat and directed them all to take a seat as well. Katie hardly heard as Simon stuttered through an explanation of how protests in support of the vampire community had come about, and why he felt that the cause would benefit from formal support from the likes of Laurent. She couldn't stop staring at Laurent, but he hardly seemed to notice, pressing her hands together to stop them from shaking. Then it was over, and everybody was standing up again. Laurent offered that he would consider his support for their cause, and that in either case they were always welcome at the castle now. When he shook hands with Katie, his hand lingered a bit longer than it should have, and with his other arm he ran a finger along her bare forearm, making her shiver. He felt something thin and sharp press against her palm. Her head swam, and she was unsure what to make of that, moving in a daze until she was back in the club, and another drink made its way to her. Only then did she check what he had given her. It was a business card, blank but for a signature, phone number, and the words, come back. A thrill ran up her spine and her breath caught in her throat. This was it, she realised. If she was to have an in to spy on the Von Fury, then this card was the key, with all the potential gains and risks that this presented. Chapter 29 Jess felt Kit's eyes on her as she pulled the t-shirt over her head. She turned and saw him lounging on the bed, still naked, smiling at her. She picked up her towel off the floor and threw it at him. When are you going to put some clothes on? She asked. I can be dressed in like a minute, he said. But what's the hurry? She pulled on a pair of jeans. The hurry is that we've spent far longer in bed than I've planned. She grinned. Not that I'm complaining. You sure you want to tag along? What else am I going to do? Go visit me dad? He laughed. Besides, how many other of your fellows ever got to meet your parents? You'd be the first, she said. Suddenly there was a tightness in her chest and an ache in the pit of her stomach. She felt her cheeks flush and turned away. Even then never. Well, believe me, I feel honoured. His voice was right behind her now. Her whole body tingled as he kissed the back of her neck. But your mum and dad aren't going to eat Christmas dinner without us, are they? He put his hands on her hips and kissed the side of her neck. No. She grabbed his hands and stepped out of his embrace. But we need to get Miles first, so... She swatted at his penis and laughed as he dodged backwards. Get dressed. It turned out Kit could get dressed in around a minute. They left soon afterwards walking the distance between her flat and Lydia's house. The sky was clear, the air was cold and crisp, and the streets were mostly empty. It took them about 40 minutes to get there. After letting them in, Miles returned to the couch, where he was watching the news and drinking a glass of dark red liquid that could only be blood. Are you geared up to hit the parentals with the whole, hey guess what, the world's ending and I'm the only one who can save us from total damnation thing? Jess asked him. How are you going to explain the... It gestured vaguely. You know. You? Yeah, since I'm not legally dead and they don't know anything about what happened, I think we're going to avoid that topic, Miles said. It'll be enough for them to take in as it is, I reckon. Jess glanced over at the television, where footage shot from a helicopter over the Mediterranean Sea showed masses of dead fish floating on what had ceased to be water with the second trumpet. 
He looked from the image of the sea to the contents of the glass mouths had been drinking from back and back again. They were both the same colour. No, no, George Darheen said. I believe you. There's been so much that's beyond belief in the past couple of months that it lends a lot of weight to your story. But I'd be lying if I said there wasn't part of me that thinks you've gone off your head, you know. George, his wife, Joan, admonished him. Sorry, dear. I didn't mean anything by it. I just meant... They were eating Christmas dinner, with the stereo playing seasonal songs low in the background. Mars's plate was almost empty, so he stuck his fork in the last bits of meat and finished them as quick as he could. Then, without a word, he stood up and walked out into the back garden. As he reached the kitchen, he heard his mother say, Oh, now look what you've done, George. And he shook his head. He had just exhaled the first drag of his cigarette when Jess joined him outside. On you cold? She asked as she fastened up her coat. He shrugged. Lesser evil. I guess. She laughed. As awkward as all this is, though, I'm glad you came. Come on. I'm not enough of a knob to not turn up at Christmas. Yeah, and you got a haircut and a shave, too. I'm so proud. They both laughed, then went on smoking in silence. The sky was gradually darkening, and the only sound was the whistling of the wind. Eventually, Miles dropped the dog end of his cigarette in the drain, and Jess followed suit. My... She said when he turned to head inside. You don't have to bear the weight of it all by yourself, you know. He tensed. When he looked at her, he could see the apprehension in her face about what she had said, but it did nothing to alleviate the feeling of tightness around his shoulders and in his stomach. The weight of what? Come on, she said. The grief, the guilt. I know you too well to not see it written across your face all the time. He lowered his eyes, then took out two cigarettes. After lighting both in his mouth, he passed one to Jess. Look, Jess. He shook his head, then forced himself to meet her eyes. Look. I know that I've been distant and standoffish and all that. I do. But like you said... Yeah, I know. I don't want it to... No, listen. He held up a hand. I know you're trying to help. But I still don't want to talk about it, alright? Just thinking about... His voice choked up and he could feel his lower lip trembling. He tried to force the words out. Even just thinking about that... What happened... What I did... The sobs breaking up his words tumbled out into a stream of tears. He tried to choke them back and failed. His throat hurting as he fell back into the outer wall of the house, crying. Jess stepped closer to him and I first put a hand on his shoulder. He put his hand over hers and stood up straight again, calming himself and slowing his breathing. Then a memory arose, unbidden, of the force and weight behind his arm as he swung the sword at Lydia's neck. The sobs came again, and Jess now threw her arms around him and held him until they stopped. When he came back to himself, he saw his cigarette on the floor, a long trail of ash down to the filter, Jess has lain not too far from it, in the same condition. Mum and Dad might wonder where we disappeared to if we stay out here for a third, she said. He nodded, deep breaths helping him to steady himself, even though he had no need of air in his lungs. Plus, we did just leave Kit in there by himself. She laughed, then her face grew serious. My, I know you need to deal with everything your own way, and you never need to tell me if you can't bring yourself to. Please don't keep your distance anymore, okay? I'll try, but I can't promise. I'll have to do. Come on. She led him back into the house, and he recomposed himself to pretend once more that the worst he had to deal with was how irritating his family could be at Christmas time. The main sound in Hazel's house was her sister Lucy babbling excitedly as she played with her new toys in the living room. This punctuated by Rosie yipping or whining in response to the girl, involving the dog in her play. Joseph and Melissa Lohman sat on the couch, apparently worn out just by the act of watching them. Hazel was sat at the dining table, empty since she had cleared the plate several hours ago. There was a journal open in front of her, in which she had been trying to record as much as she could from the past half a year. 
She had started with her succession to the sentinel position, carried on up to the face of the seven trumpets, but hadn't written anything for about an hour and a half. In that time, she had done nothing. It was a nothing that involved staring at Facebook on her phone. There was a knock at the door and she blinked, jolted out of whatever trance she had been in. Her parents both looked at her from the other room, so she rolled her eyes and said, I'll get it. It was Miles at the door. He had shaved off his beard and neatened his hair, making him look several years younger than he had. She smiled and said his name, taken aback by the enthusiasm in her voice. All right, he said, returning a smile. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas? After a moment, she realised she was staring at him and shook her head. Come in. Sorry. I'm just feeling a bit songed right now. It's alright. He closed the door behind him. Uh, Jess should be up in a bit, but I just had to get away from your parents. I haven't seen them in months, but it's maddening. I'm not intruding, am I? She shook her head, unable to remove the stupid grin from her face. Okay, that's good. Lucy ran out to the hall, followed by Rosie, who proceeded to scamper around Miles' feet and jump at him until he bent down to stroke her. Mum! Lucy called back into the house after scrutinising Miles. It's Hazel's boyfriend! Hazel went to protest, then reconsidered and just shook her head. Miles laughed. Okay, her mum called back. I'll get your dad to open up the wine then if you want some. Hazel looked at Miles, who shouted, That'll be great, thanks, in response. Then he stood, as if waiting for something, and Hazel shooed Lucy out of the hall. She protested, but went after looking at Miles and giggling. Hazel shook her head and laughed again. He'd say, Miles said. He reached into his coat and pulled out a small box wrapped in silver paper with a bow on top. He cleared his throat. It's just a stupid little thing, but... Her face flushed and her smile got even wider, which she didn't think was possible at that point, as she took it from him. You didn't have to, you know. At his prompt, she opened it to find a small bottle of the perfume she wore. Miles, thank you. She hugged him and kissed him on the cheek. He shrugged. It's nothing, really. How did you know? Vampires have a really good sense of smell, so I... Uh... Smelled? They both laughed. Then when the sound died, they found themselves just standing, staring at each other in the hall. So, uh, should we go inside and have a drink? Hazel said, by way of forcing them both to head into the other room. Miles agreed and followed her through after taking off his coat. A winding creak of sandbags and barbed wire marked the boundary of the Mardi's territory in Syria. A significant section of this border trailed in front of a line of burnt-out and overturned vehicles. There was a high pole on either side of a dirt road which cut through the boundary, a rank and bloated body hanging by the neck from each one with flies buzzing about it and the heat speeding up the decay. The men guarding this checkpoint hadn't had a human contact all day, or during most of the previous days they had been on duty since October. Their territory was well established by now, and while it remained a mystery what compelled the Syrians, or any of the other governments whose lands the Mardi had seized, to keep their distance. Civilians, it was a simple matter of fear. So the men smoked and idled, wishing their days away. When one of those on duty saw a shape on the horizon, the other two thought it was a joke. But soon enough they saw it too, three shapes making their way towards the checkpoint. The guards stood alert, checking and rechecking their little-used rifles. Two of the men were white, Westerners who should be red and sweltering in the heat, even in the desert robes they wore. Yet their manner was such that they could have been wandering through a park in a gentle breeze. The heat that made the distance shimmer, seeming not to touch them. The third figure was almost entirely shrouded by a black robe, and just the sight of him gave the guards chills. He led them forward, a macabre grin on his shrouded face. At a nudge from his left, one of the guards called out, HALT! in Arabic with a trembling voice. Identify yourselves and your purpose. We seek passage through your lands to Israel's northern walls, the magistrate said, stopping and raising a hand so that behind him the witnesses did likewise. 
who were the guards felt a hand touch their shoulders, and a white man in a dark suit stepped between them towards the magistrate. The guards shared a confused look, unsure what was going on, then returned to idling and smoking as if there was nobody at the checkpoint. Wandering in plain sight isn't wise, Merahem, the man in the suit said. Ah, Lucius, the magistrate said. Still about your meddling, I see. It's not meddling, it's long-term planning. These are the witnesses, then? Merahem beckoned, and the two other men stepped forward. Their skin had healed from the scabs and sores of the Thai prison, and now their hair and beards had grown long and it was only when you got close enough to see past the fringes of their hair that you noticed the lack of eyeballs in their sockets. Interesting. Lucius said, I've been admiring your work, gentlemen, and look forward to seeing more of it. But if you are to pass into the territory of one of my antichrists, then I must ask that no plague or omen crosses these borders with you. Why is that, demon? The witnesses said in unison. Creepy acoustics too. Very nice. Lucius told Merahem. Then, to the witnesses. Because if this kingdom is spared of the plagues, my friends, it boosts the credibility of the man who rules it. As he is an agent of the same apocalypse as you, it is only... courteous to help one another out. Merahem laughed. You and your bullshit always did amuse me, Lucius. Nevertheless, it is a reasonable enough price for passage. Very well. Excellent. May I have a hint of what is on offer next from your lads, then? Hmm. I think you will find the next plague quite to your liking. With that, they walked unseen past the guards at the checkpoint and into the territory of the Mahdi on their way to the walls of Israel. On the 29th of December, several large cities in an arc from Italy through Eastern Europe and the Middle East to the Indian subcontinent found themselves overrun by the dead. The last incidents involving reanimated corpses had happened on a small scale. They had also been slow, shambling things with fragile bodies and so despite the horror that those caught up in the incident had endured, ultimately the threat was quashed with ease. But this new threat was different, and the risen dead were not so easily put down. People die of a variety of causes every day, and there was nothing supernatural about the deaths of those who began the plague. One man had a heart attack in the middle of a shopping centre, for example, and one teenage girl broke her back when falling from height. But in all cases, no sooner had their pulses stopped than they let out an ear-splitting screech and rose. They moved as they had in life, barring any limitations imposed by the manner of their deaths. A girl with the broken back ran hunched over, while a woman who had a broken ankle hobbled on the limb until it pulled her to the ground and she was forced to crawl. They didn't feed off their victims, only killed them. Most often this was as quick as snapping the neck, unless the victim was able to fight back. A bodybuilder able to overpower the corpse of a frail old man had his hands and arms chewed and scratched until, while retreating, he tripped backwards and once he hit the ground had the creature biting at his neck and he ultimately drowned in his own blood. The plague of the dead grew, each victim rising to follow their killer and they made a trail through the cities and after just the first day hundreds of thousands were dead. This was definitely the witnesses. Miles asked. Joel had updated the map in his office so that the yellow pins covered the trail of the dead from the cities. Definitely, he said. It fits into their trail. They seem to be somewhere in Mardi territory now. Plus, the dead don't just rise like that. Vampires or different varieties of ghouls, sure. But I don't think anything like this has ever been recorded. Well, that's just great, Miles said. He traced his finger across the trail of pins leading from Thailand towards the Middle East with a northward curve over the Himalayas in the middle. The pins increased in number as the trail moved past the Indian subcontinent, ending in a massive cloud of activity at this latest point. Jesus, they're escalating? What? Look, he pointed. The number of omens gets overtaken by the number of plagues here. 
and the plagues grow exponentially until we get to this last thing where you can't even count the number of instances. Oh yeah, Joel said. Oh shit. Pretty much. Unfortunately, there's nothing you can do about it for the moment. Even if we knew exactly where they were, you're not getting anywhere near them in that territory. We'll have to hope that they keep moving west and wait. Alright, I guess. Not like we haven't got enough to keep us occupied in the interim. Mar smiled, a bitter edge to his expression. Happy New Year. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this, then please subscribe to my YouTube channel, Philip Dickens Books, for more writing and story-related content. From the Hill of Megiddo is also available on your favourite podcast service. There's a new episode of this story every Monday, and next week the Guild will make their move against the Van Fury as Gaz and Bry fulfil the task Nuadu set them, and tensions between humans and demons escalate. See you then.